Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest, Preston Pish from We Study Billionaires. Preston, thank you so much for coming on. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Hey, Will. How are you doing? Happy New Year, Happy New Year to you. <laughs> yeah, man. I haven't, haven't talked to you in a whole year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to kind of kick this off. Um, I first want to talk about, you know, some, some different, uh, you know, questions around kind of how you built your brand and that kind of thing. And then we'll transition to Bitcoin. Um, so I want to first start with like a lot of people are familiar with your podcast, uh, probably have found it over the last year or so, uh, you know, kind of talk us through the early days back in, you know, 2014, 2015, when you and Stig were coming up with this idea to start the podcast, what made you decide to do this? Um, and then kind of talk us through that early process of kind of like getting it off the ground. Well, before the podcast was even out there, uh, I had a YouTube channel where I was, I was making these instructional videos on how to invest like Warren Buffett. And it was all just about value investing. And I would say, I mean, there weren't a lot of videos. I would say there was, uh, 35 to 40 videos that were out there, but they were sequential. It was like a tutorial that took you from like video one through video 35 or whatever it was. And they actually tied to a book that I had wrote and published self-published and put uh, into Kindle and it was like interactive with the videos. It was probably one of the first Kindle books out there at the time. And I was able to do this because I self-published it, um, where I made the videos kind of interactive with the book. And, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was very different. It wasn't like a normal published book. And I think that that was very different and I sold it for I mean, varied because I mean, I had no brand, no name, especially in the finance space. I put it out there to really kind of at a low price to just generate traction, but it really kind of clicked. And a lot of people kind of liked the simplicity of it. And they liked the interactive part of like how they were able to watch a video after they just read a chapter or whatever. And um, so that was out there before I was even doing the podcasting. And this is the bit. Warren Buffett accounting book, right? This was actually a book that was called uh, Warren Buffett's Three Favorite Books, which was all about, and there was like marketing and stuff kind of tied into that. Um, and it was talking about security analysis, the intelligent investor, uh, and the wealth of nations kind of like, what were, the, what were the really like key points out of these that, that I thought kind of Buffett pulled from them um, and how he viewed asset valuation. And then there was, you know, the there was a website that went with this that had like calculators there for people to use. This is the buffettsbooks.com website. And so all of this was in place. Um, and then uh, Stig on the forum of that website, Stig showed up on that. And we were talking just on the forum and in the forum at, back in this time, this is like 10 years ago, the forum was a place where we were just a bunch of value investors talking about what we thought the value of company XYZ was. We're like, oh, I think it's this. I think the competitive advantage is this. I'm getting a discount cash flow, you know, using a discount cash flow. I think the IRR is whatever. And the whole forum was just all of this. And so um, I had stood that forum up and then Stig became a moderator. He got heavily involved in the forum. And I mean, he was making these massive posts. And, um, then we went to, uh, Omaha, we went to the Berkshire shareholders meeting, uh, a bunch of people just from the forum. Like we didn't, we've never met each other. We were just kind of interacting on the forum. And so some of us went out to the Berkshire meeting. I met a guy, uh, Hari Ramachandra who comes on our mastermind from time to time. 
Uh, I met him out there at the Berkshire meeting. He worked at LinkedIn. He was an executive at LinkedIn. And he's just like, hey, have you ever listened to a podcast? And I was like, no, I've never even, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> right? I had this YouTube channel. I didn't even really realize what podcasting was. And he, he got me on it. And so I'm listening to a podcast and I was like, oh my God, like this would be so easy to do. Like your barrier to entry is nothing for the most part. And I'm um, already doing the YouTube thing and making videos is very hard and a lot of work, but creating audio content is pretty simple. Like you just have a conversation, you put it out there and people can listen to it on their car ride or, or whatever. So that was kind of the impetus for us standing up a podcast. And so I reached out to Stig just naturally because we were having so many interactions on the forum and I was like, Hey man, you want to do this? And his immediate, his initial reaction was like, well, you know, English is my second language. I might not be the best fit for this. I just laughed. I said, Hey, I don't think it's about that. I think it's just about us. Like, obviously we do a show about financial valuation and about, uh, Warren Buffett, like principles and maybe study some other billionaires that, uh, were investors. And we'll just talk about that stuff. And, you know, if we have a hundred people listen to us, so be it. We we're just, we're doing it because we would be doing it in the forum anyway. Why not just have a real conversation instead of clacking on the keys back and forth to each other? And that was just kind of how it started. And how long did it take for it to be profitable in terms of like, you know, obviously you're, you're generating revenue based off of ads. So like how, do, how long did that take? Was it a certain like time threshold or was it more so, so like in terms the, of the, views? The early years of podcasting, um, I mean, there wasn't like ad insertion. Like now, like our show, we do dynamic ad ins ad insertion and things like that. I would say the first four years, I don't even think we ran an ad. We were literally just doing it because we loved to do it. Um, we, I mean, after we had done it that long, it was kind of like, okay, well, this is kind of turning into a bunch of work. And uh, if we weren't doing this, for, if we were just doing it for the fun of it, we might have a conversation every month, not every week and blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, it got to a point after a few years of just having fun, like truly just having fun at the beginning and then saying, all right, well, there's a lot of people listening to this, like way more than we had, had ever, ever expected. And um, hey, we can maybe start monetizing it by running ads. And then, you know, you start getting involved with ad agencies. And then after you get big enough, you can kind of bring all that stuff in house and, uh, you know, go from there. Who is the first guest that you were like, okay, like we made it. Like, you know, who's the first person you had on the show <laughs> where you're like, I can't believe I'm talking to this person right now. Well, so I'll, I'll answer this in two parts. So, um, the, f I forget what episode we had guy spear on, um, guy spear for people who don't know, he's a, he's a pretty well-known, uh, value investor. Um, I think at the time he had like 20,000 followers on Twitter and I mean, Stig and I just, I mean, I don't know what we had, but it was nowhere near 20,000 followers. And so we reach out to him cause we both had read his book and uh, he just immediately responded back. He's like, I'd love to, I'd love to come on. Right. So he comes on, we're, we're just, we cannot even believe this. We're just like, why would this guy talk to us? Like we are just, we're nobodies. Right. Uh, why would this guy just be so, Clubs. yeah. Why would this guy be so willing to come and have a conversation with us? And, um, and sure enough, he, uh, he came on, we had this awesome conversation with him. And then I think the thing that just like really blew our minds is after we were done recording with him, he was just like, how can I help you guys? 
Like, what can I do? And he's like, I can introduce you to whoever, right? Like whoever you want to have on the show, just let me know. And I'll, I'll reach out to them and see what I can do. And I mean, he really did. Like he was just, he was throwing like all these people's names. And I would say like our first like 40 shows could almost all be tied back to guys introduction of whoever, like that followed guest wise. And it was just amazing. Like you start getting some guests on the show and then it just kind of compounds. We're like, oh yeah, well, so-and-so came on your show. You must have some type of like audience or they wouldn't have come on the show. And sure enough, then they, the, the one that I, that, that I would say was just kind of like a moment where you're just like, what's going on? Uh, we had Tony Robbins come on the show and it wasn't from us reaching out to him. Like he had just published a book. Um, we had covered his book on the show where we just talked about what we learned from the book, but then it was probably a year, I don't know, two years later, we actually got a, an email from a publicist and they were like, yeah, we'd like for Tony Robbins to come on your show. And I just remember we, we emailed each other. We're like, okay, so is this a prank? Like, there's no way this guy's like coming on our show. Right. And, uh, we, we gave the publicist the time and. I remember Stig and I kind of got on the video and, and we're like, so is, is, is he really going to show up? And sure enough, he did. And we did the interview. And at the end of it, we just kind of looked at each other like, what is this turning into? What is this? But yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's incredible. So like when you talk to these successful people, like I'm sure at first it's, you know, you're, you're kind of in awe a little bit at first. And like, at least that's how I felt. And then, you know, I, at, after a while, you kind of, you kind of just get used to it, but like, talk us through that process of like, you know, like, for example, recently you talked to like Mark Cuban, right. And this is something like you, you told me you're like, you know, I had a lot of people messaging me and they're saying like, you know, it's, you know, Oh, do you, do you feel like crazy after talking to this guy? And you're like, no, I just feel normal. So like, how does that process take place? Is it just like, you know, repetitively talking to these, you know, higher, you know, profile people that it just becomes the norm or like, what's kind of like your mental is it just a confidence thing that kind of makes you feel comfortable, to, you know, talking to these kinds of people? I think it's just the, after you talk to enough people, I think the thing that you really kind of walk away with, and I'm sure you would agree is just, uh, everyone is just, they're just living their normal life. Right. And just because maybe they're, they're publishing a lot of media, it's almost like, uh, there's this perception that that person's special or that that person is different than everybody else. And at the end of the day, nobody's different than anybody else. I mean, everybody's just kind of cracking a, along at whatever that job is that they have. Some jobs just kind of put you in this, uh, in this uh, spotlight of attention where you're just, you know, like you look at the CNBC folks, right. And um, they're, they, they, it's getting blasted out to millions upon millions of people. Um, but as soon as they're done, they're just, they're, they're walking down the street, just like anybody else. They're getting in their car, they're going home. They've got kids. They're doing all this same stuff that anybody else is doing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't really know how to answer your question other than everybody out there is there's, there's no one person that's special there's no one person that is more important than the next. It, they truly aren't. They're just adding value to society in a different way and maybe in a way that, that might look more glamorous, but really after any amount of time of like actually seeing what the day-to-day -day look, looks like, it's just really not. So, what are some of the like 
biggest lessons that you've taken away from speaking to all these successful people? I guess what I'm asking is like, what are some of the common traits that you see from these different successful people in terms of like what's gotten them there? If you could kind of identify a couple kind of core traits like that they all share. So, I mean, the, the most noticeable is just the focus of energy into whatever it is that they're trying to build. So, um, you know, like our show, we're studying billionaires. When you look at each one of them, they, they achieved their net worth through just a massive amount of focus and energy of whatever it is they're, they're trying to achieve. And they've had some just really opportunistic breaks or timing that facilitated them to kind of like have this quantum leap compared to what a typical person that's, uh, you know, trying to build a business could maybe attain. Um, that's first and foremost. So like these people have in, in they're relentless. I mean, my God, they're relentless. Um, you know, the, the, the marshmallow test, I'm sure you've heard about this marshmallow test of like when kids are young and their ability to like withstand and like just the, the sheer, uh, uh, time preference is what it is, but at the same time, they will not give in no matter what, like, I am going to figure out a way to do whatever this is, whatever the barrier is, I'm going to burst through this thing. I'm going to go around and I'm going to go above it. I'm going to dig through the ground and go underneath of it, but they're going to find a way to get through it. Um, and I think it also comes with, uh, they're able to kind of identify like, okay, there's a lot of friction there, but I can still kind of achieve what I'm doing by, by making adjustments along the way. So there it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of a lot of those things, but they're relentless, just absolutely relentless. And before we transition to like Bitcoin, I just want to give you a chance to just speak about how you guys are kind of pivoting, um, you know, your, your show in terms of, I know now, obviously most people listening know you have a Bitcoin specific show and you've brought on a couple new, um, you know, members to the team as well. So just kind of talk us through like how that process is going and like where you're kind of pivoting to over like, you know, the next couple of years or whatever. Um, we're just looking at any type of media in the finance space, really. Um, I'm obviously really excited about Bitcoin. Um, I think it's going to be a huge part of the financial system, massive part of the financial system uh, long-term. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that don't, don't agree with me for sure. And so there's a lot of content and a lot of media that still needs to be created around the, the, the stuff that so many people out there are in, that are interested in other things, equities specifically. Um, so we're creating content there. We're creating content in real estate, which is obviously always a popular one. Um, cause there's so many, there's, there's different ways to take your retained earnings and apply it to whatever. And, and although you and you and me kind of have an opinion, a lot of people probably listening to this have an opinion that it's going to be hard to outpace the, uh, the growth rate of Bitcoin. Um, you know, some other people really kind of have a hard time wrapping their head around that macro, uh, site picture or buy into that site picture, thinking that the legacy system is going to unravel or anything like that. So for those people, they need somewhere else where they can invest their retained earnings. And I mean, there's tons of things out there to invest in. So yeah, we're just, we're, we're just, we're creating content around all of that. Nice. I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about Bitcoin price too much, but I do want to ask you, have you been surprised with price action over the last, you know, six to nine, six to nine months, call it 
Um, and then going off of that, what are your thoughts? I know, you know, you've been a huge proponent of, of stock to flow over the last year or so. What are your thoughts on that model now? Um, yeah. So the first part I'm, I've been very surprised by the price action, um, particularly as of recently, um, the, the summer sell-off, I think, what were we down, Will? 60%? Is that how much it went down? Yeah. We went down from 64 to 29,700. So, yeah. yeah. So that, that initially, I was uh, a little surprised. I mean, when it, when it dropped 35%, I was like, okay, this is normal compared to like the previous cycle as far as the volatility. But when it went 60%, I was like, hold on a second. And uh, But then when the hashing was announced that 50% of the hashing was was getting uh, geographically relocated and that whole bit, then that, that sell-off made a lot more sense to me. The sell-off we're seeing right now um, is, is pretty aggressive, I think, especially after making a new all-time high. Like when the, when the price hit, uh, we, I think we got to 69,000 and, and some change. Um, when it got up there, I was like, oh my hold on to your hat. This thing is going to make a run at a hundred thousand, like in short order. I really, I really believe that. And it did the exact opposite. So I was, I was pretty shocked by that. Now you, and you've been one of the leading people in posting some of the uh, flows and how hard Asia is selling, selling their position uh, with this recent movement. And the only thing that I can kind of, uh, wrap my head around is the whole Evergrande uh, credit implosion that that must be happening in Asia uh, is maybe one of the reasons that that we're seeing this. And maybe this is also a little bit more of the, uh, you know, if I'm thinking of it from like a business lens, um, if the whole hashing over there is forced to shut down and you've had all those coins sitting on balance sheets for so long, they're going to initially sell the position, right, to to move it, to do all those initial type things. And then as none of it comes back online and they're also ratcheting down on exchanges, I think it's the second wave of selling of just like, all right, so this is never coming back. We need to keep doing, maybe that's what's causing it. I don't know. I, you think I also just like general risk off behavior? Like, you know, we've just seen like I think it's stocks sell off as well. Yeah. Fears of like interest rates rising and stuff. I think it's, I think it's that. I think it's, uh, the leverage obviously has played a huge role in some of this. Um, but one thing's for sure, it's, it is not acting like the previous cycle as far as the volatility range that we experienced on the last cycle in the, in the pace from the last cycle. So um, with respect to the stock to flow, and I don't think I gave you a good answer at all. I think I'm, what I'm telling you is I'm just as perplexed as everybody else. Um, with respect to the stock to flow model, I mean, the, the variance in that model from like one standard deviation, the two standard deviations from what the projected, you know, floor is, is pretty dang wide. Like you're still within it. Um, even right now with the price getting punished. Um, the other thing that the stock to flow model doesn't discuss at all is the pace at which you transition from the, the previous four year cycle to this four year cycle. There's assumptions that people have put in there as far as it being 365 days, like kind of like a growth there, but that's not anything that plan B, as far as I know, has addressed or put into the, into the uh, model. 
there's obviously always been uh, a huge argument against stock to flow because you're not accounting for the the um demand. the demand part of it. Um, I've written you know a thread. I never really wrote a, a thorough article on this, but you know my opinion was as long as the hash rate continues to increase and grow over time, maybe that's applying like a consistent flow of demand, almost like people standing in line in order to buy lemonade at a lemonade stand. If there's always somebody in line, you know there's a constant demand for the service that's being rendered and the the demand that's being put on it. So um, we've seen some, you know, in the middle of this last run-up, we obviously had a huge hit to that uh, hash rate. So maybe that threw a wrinkle in it. I, I don't know, but um, I would say this really generically. As long as people are still fighting, tripping over themselves to own Bitcoin, which is the case, you see more hash rate coming online, right? It's continuing to grow. My expectation for the coming year is that it's going to keep growing, the hash rate. Um, as, as long as they're still showing up, that's telling you that there's a reason they're showing up and they're making money by performing those activities. Um, I suspect that the stock to flow, whatever the valuation is, whether the math at a hundred thousand or, you know, he has, he has various models, it's at 200 and whatever thousand, um, who knows, but I think the idea of stock to flow is very valid that it's becoming scarcer, um, and, uh, you know, how much more, whether you can actually model it down to a specific price, especially as the M2 money supply keeps growing, who knows? But I like the idea of the model. And the last question on price before we move on is just like, do you still stand in the camp of seeing these four-year cycles continue moving forward? I personally don't. Um, and, you know, we could, we could get into discussing perhaps why, but I'm sure the people want to hear your opinion as to, do you think that continues? Like we just see these very clean kind of, you know, kind of logarithmic cups that just continue to form into the foreseeable future. Or do you think we eventually kind of break away from that kind of market structure? I kind of agree with you. I think that, and Willie, I think has done probably a better job than anybody. I know I've had him on my show and you've had him on talking about uh, why he thinks that that model might not be um, viable or nearly as calculable as it's been in the past because of all these other factors, particularly when you start talking about like derivatives and stuff. I would agree with that. And I think that that's a, that's a great uh, counterpoint to stock to flow. If you're going to say, Hey, why is it, why is it going to fail? Why is it going to break down? Or why is it not even an invalid model? I think a lot of Willie's points uh, are great places to start. At the end of the day, to, for me personally, like I don't need that model to be true or false, right? I, I think it's just a unique way to kind of lay out like why we should see the price rise every four years. Um, and, uh, you know, I, the thing that I think is really important to pay attention to when you're talking about like metrics of sustaining a, a, a long position with a lot of exposure is you're looking at, you know, the number of addresses that keep growing. You look at the, the, the addresses that are holding long positions that aren't selling and how that's being, uh, uh, well, what's the name of the chart? You probably know the, the name of the chart better than I would. That's, that's demonstrating like 
your holding period because these people who are holding oh like, like long like you're saying like the uh the like selling history or you're saying like the yeah. like long-term holder thing long-term holder oh, got it and and both i think those are really important yeah, those trend up to and see. to the right yeah that's right because when you think about the if if a person's been in the space my experience having been in the space for years right is this volatility that we saw from 69 to 42 people who are just getting into the market they're looking at this and saying how can these idiots keep holding this stuff and i'm i'm looking back at them and saying dude i've been holding this stuff since $200 like like i you, you want to talk about when i was scared i was scared when it went from 350 to 275 right in $100 uh, that's when it was scary is because you don't have any type of uh capital gains in the position, but now it's, it's, it's so much easier. And so when you're looking at where a preponderance of the ownership is, it's in people who have been in the space for a significant amount of time, and they're trying to buy as much as they possibly can in these dips, opposed to getting scared and running away. And for a lot of them, they've started businesses and they have free cash flows that they can continue to allocate to buy the dip and then just keep stuffing more of this into long-term storage. And I think that's, if there's one thing that I think an outsider or somebody who's new to the space just really doesn't get, it's really that point. It's that the people that have been in the space for a long time, look at these dips and they're, they're just laughable. They're just, they're just stacking as much of this stuff as they can possibly stack. And, um, and they typically have assets that are kicking off free cash flows to sustain those types of activities whether it's got 60% volatility doesn't phase them. Were you surprised to not see more corporate treasury announcements following MicroStrategy and Tesla? I think uh, at least you know, me, me personally, after Tesla came out and announced, I was like, oh man, like we're going to get several, you know, that follow yeah. in the months after this. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. I, if I had to, uh, if I had to go back and ask myself that question when MicroStrategy came out, I probably would have told you, yeah, we're going to see some more announcements in the rest of the year. Now, how many I would, I, you know, I would just be like, I don't know, but I think you're going to see more throughout the rest of 21. And uh, I'm a little disappointed that we didn't see that. Um, back then when he was making that announcement, I said, what makes this so special is this is a publicly traded company. I suspect private companies have been doing this I know I had been right as a private company had been buying it and putting it on my balance sheet. I was doing it in 2015. I was putting it on the balance sheet of my company. Right. So I think private companies are doing that. I think when you look at the ownership of the equity, it's much more concentrated into the hands of the few when you're looking at private companies. And so they can go out and they can do these really bold calls because a few people hold all the voting rights and the decision space of the company's direction and they can do more bold things with, with the treasury. Um, when you start getting into publicly traded companies, especially ones that are going to get headlines because they have such a large market cap like Michael's, it's really rare to find somebody that has that much control and somebody who can piece this all together and make the really bold call, especially as bold as Michael has done it, which is anything that's retained earnings. I'm all in is pretty much his call. And, um, and I, that, that's probably going to be hard to find anywhere else. Like Apple puts this on their balance. Dude, they're going to be doing it in one or 2%, just like Ray's announcement. So we can talk about that. So 
Ray recently came on our platform and uh, gave an interview and he made the comment that, you know, 2% Bitcoin allocation is, you know, a, a reasonable thing for a person to do. And I think for people who are, who are viewing that comment from the outside, they're saying, well, that's like not even a position, but they don't understand how Ray invests. Like when you understand his, his philosophy, his philosophy is, um, you know, he's doing risk parity, which that's a whole nother conversation that we can get into if you want to go down that path that I think is extremely concerning <laughs> to be implementing that approach. But, um, and, and, and if I was going to, if Ray was sitting here right now, I suspect he would talk about circuit breakers and how his, how his approach is much more dynamic and he's not necessarily going to be in this risk parity play if those circuit breakers that, that are signaling a, a uh, credit meltdown type event would take him out of a lot of those positions, right? But for simplicity, for people that are just uh, blanket, no circuit breaker of a credit event uh, in play, implementing risk parity, there's big issues there. But the reason that I think the 2% for Ray is, is a very meaningful position is because when we look at Bitcoin in like, if this thing takes over and really becomes a global settlement layer and people are eventually using this to, to settle just everyday transactions, you're talking about a hundred X, 200 X movement from where we're at. Okay. And if we're using just really round numbers, if Bitcoin's at 50,000 and we go a hundred X, you're at a $5 million valuation on Bitcoin it, all in today's buying power terms, right? It, that gets really confusing too, as you play that out. But for simplicity, that's a $5 million valuation per Bitcoin. So if you had 1% exposure in that, whatever your net worth is today is completely protected with a 1% position, right? So if, you, if your net worth is $100,000 and you got $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, on the other side of this catastrophic meltdown swap of global settlement layer money, you would still have a net worth of $100,000 with a 1% position in Bitcoin. I think that's how Ray's looking. Ray's looking at it from a risk mitigation standpoint. So if you're talking 2%, you're going to double your net worth, right? So is that is that unreasonable for a guy like Ray Dalio, who's got the entire planet listening to every little thing he says to go out and say, I think it's very responsible in that it's just, it's a protection. It's a hedge against a catastrophic event from happening. And if you took 2%, well, then you doubled your net worth, right? Which would be incredible for a lot of people. So uh, that's how I view that specific uh, comment from him. Makes sense. But you, you do feel like Ray gets Bitcoin. You do feel like he understands the value prop there. I think he understands the value prop against a system that is very sick <laughs> and very unhealthy. Yes, he understands the scarcity of that. And it all comes from his his ideas and around gold and always having gold in his portfolio for these types of events. So yeah, I think that he understands that. I don't think that he necessarily, and maybe he's he's come around to this, but from the writings that I saw in the summer and things like that, um, I think he's way behind on the tech and how uh, robust it is against attack, 
I don't think that he necessarily has a deep appreciation for that. Are you referring to like when he was making those comments that like you could have some kind of like, uh, I forget what the term is called, like what they did in the, in like 1930s or whatever, when they came out and said, everyone needs to turn their gold in when he made some comment about, they could do that, confiscate your, your Bitcoin. Yeah. And then he made a comment like, Hey, if the government really wants to to squash this or shut it down, they can't. And, uh, they, you might be able to do it locally as far as like you step into the internet service providers, you make it really difficult for, for people to, to do it. Um, you make it illegal and all those kinds of things, but what you can't do, or at least I really think is an insanely low probability is you'd have to have global cooperation on a scale that we've never seen amongst all nation states in order to truly shut this thing down. Do you think it would be easier? Like, do you think the, let me rephrase this. Do you think the risk of Bitcoin being shut down would be higher if there was just one central, you know, entity that controlled the whole planet? Do you think the fact that there are so many countries adds to the kind of like risk? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many, when you get into encryption in general, just like, I mean, a VPN, right? Like you can, you can hide, you can mask your IP address to anywhere you want in the world. And you know what? There's nothing anybody can do about it. So Bitcoin's a lot like that. You know, like there's just not a lot anybody can do to really kind of, uh, it's like a dam that like there's all these holes in it and you only got so many fingers you can plug it. It's going to break. And um, it's just a matter of how uh, gullible you are as to the capability of the technology uh, to think you can stop it. All, you, all you're going to do is maybe slow it down a little bit, but in, the, in a long enough time horizon, this thing wins. Preston, let's talk uh, interest rates and monetary policy. So I want to get your thoughts on you know, what the Fed's been talking about recently in terms of monetary tightening, uh, as well as some of the incentives that are behind this. I think uh, the, the biggest incentive here is the political one to kind of combat inflation. So I'm just going to give you the floor to, to go ahead and take it away there. <laughs> This is the best way I I can describe this. Um, For anybody who's been in the labor room with their wife, uh, (laughs) and Will, I know you haven't been there yet, but um, a lot of people listening have. And when when your wife goes through labor, it starts off, the contractions are really spaced out far apart. Maybe they're 20 minutes or whatever it is. I can't remember. It's been a little bit. then they start picking up and they're, they're happening twice as fast. Now you're at 10 minutes then they're at five minutes and they're getting more painful or more powerful, right? Then you're at two minutes. And uh, I think that's kind of what the global economy is going to really start manifesting kind of moving forward is it's, it's, it's going to start birthing a new system. <laughs> and when I, when the, what, what is the contraction, right? The contraction is the credit impairment because what we're doing is just, we're, we're feeding this, this whole system meds, right. To, to make it appear like what we have is stability when we have nothing of the sort. Um, the COVID shock, I think was, was like the water breaking, in, in the uh, pregnancy, it was that moment where they had to step in with so much liquidity uh, and so much monetary baseline 
uh, units to replace all the impairment and all the credit that blew up in that supply and demand shock. And what it did is it just kind of has started this, this, uh, these deflationary and inflationary spikes that I think are going to start playing out in a way that I don't think people can really even fully comprehend. Uh, yeah. And so like right now, uh, here we are the start of 2022 and, um, everybody's talking about the fixed income market selling off like crazy. And here's the fed still stuck at zero. And when you look at the pace of this sell-off in, in the fixed income market, it's moving out at a pace that is way faster than anything we've kind of seen for the last six months. And so that's the contraction getting stronger with more magnitude that this, the system, the global system is getting ready to, to throw a deflationary fit. Okay. And it's going to throw this deflationary fit. You're going to see equities just sell off like crazy. Um, you're going to see Bitcoin get crushed, right? And every, every single thing on the planet against fiat is going to get crushed because what you're, what's playing out in this scenario is over here, you have a circle of credit, which is really big, like 300 units to one unit, one single unit of monetary baseline. It's like a pimple over on the other side, right? As the one expands, as that monetary baseline, that one unit gets bigger, the, the credit expands dramatically against it, right? So when the system throws these big, giant deflationary fits, what's happening is that credit, which spends just like the money, starts contracting. And when you're looking at those two buckets, which represents fiat money, and you compare it to literally everything on the planet, real estate, stocks, fixed income, everything, right? What's happening is, is when there's less units, because they're literally blowing up because it's credit, it's a promise, it's blowing up, it's going to zero, the value of all those other things has to come down. It's a run on monetary baseline units. It's a run on that one you know, unit relative to the 314 uh, credit units that are there. I'm comparing, when I'm using those numbers, I'm comparing M2 money supply to the monetary baseline supply. Um, so those contractions are going to happen really fast, really aggressively, and you're dealing with a lot of units that are just blowing up because every time you step into the system and you reflate it, what you're doing is you're, you're not allowing the system to purge itself of what would naturally occur, which is, all right, that person went bankrupt and this person over here was fiscally responsible and they stepped in and they bought all the assets for pennies on the dollar. And then they put it back into uh, use into the economy in a constructive and in a beneficial way. That's not happening. They're stepping in with triple P loans. They're stepping in and they're just handing them out to every single hedge fund manager on the planet without even asking, right? So, what, so back to the analogy, I think that what you have is the system that's going to be moving in these inflationary and deflationary fits, and they're going to start picking up the pace, and they're going to start happening in, in a deeper and uh, more magnitude kind of way that's just going to take people's breath away. This reminds me of that chart 
that Dylan posted, and it's looking at like uh, gold measured in German marks, and you yes. reposted it. You know, it's like as you know, we all see that like chart of you know the price of gold going parabolic from like whatever like a hundred dollars to like a trillion dollars or something crazy like that. But like the the chart that Dylan posted, it's like when you actually look at the you know price swings during that period, it gets like more and more aggressive as that process takes place, like as the currency is collapsing. So like, is that basically kind of the process you're describing? And like, that's exactly it. The only difference is throughout history, when that's played out and it's played out at nauseum throughout history, that example, but it's happened out, it's happened at the nation state level. We've never seen this happen collectively on a global level. And what I think is playing out is, is happening on a global level. And, and so why is that? Why would that be happening now? And it's never happened before. Well, it all comes back to the Bretton Woods agreement and the global cooperation that happened out of that agreement. So the dollar was pegged to gold and every other currency on the planet was pegged to the dollar. So it was global cooperation through that monetary system. Then in 71, we all collectively came off of that system and went into a petrodollar system with every fiat currency floating against the other. Well, that system stayed in place until you get the interest rates down to nothing, right? And so like that system was being debased clear back, you know, as soon as we went on that system, it was nation states competing uh, with their debasement to engineer growth and GDP into their domestic regions. So that, that works because they all look like they're relatively not moving compared to one another. Like the dollar debases, everything in Europe gets expensive, right? So then they debase. It's like that analogy to you're on the highway, you got the two cars, you can't see how fast the car next to you is going. It looks like everybody's going zero if you're not seeing any type of backdrop. Well, Bitcoin's the backdrop. Bitcoin's supplying that backdrop so that you can see how fast you're going now. And um, and so, yeah, that I think that chart is extremely important. The one that you're mentioning with uh, the gold, uh, the, the mark back in the 20s with Germany. And you see the volatility in the swings, these deflationary, inflationary fits that are being thrown because the system is trying to purge itself and birth itself into a new system. And I think that's what we're seeing. Now, where we're at, are, are we are we in the car on the way to the hospital? Is the, you know, are they dilated eight millimeters or whatever it is? I don't remember. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there laughing really hard at my remembrance of, of the childbirth situation. But um, I don't know where we're at. I really don't know where we're at in that process. Um, you just know we are in that process. I think we're in that process now. Yeah. Where do you think the Fed backstop is? Do you think it's, you know, call it like a 15, 20% correction on S&P or? Say that again, Will. I'm not sure I'm tracking the question. Where do you think the Fed backstop is? Like, where do you think, where do you think they will come in and step in and provide liquidity if, if the equity markets do start to sell off? Is it a certain number? Is it, is it something, you know, non-quantitative that would make them do that? Because I feel like the, you know, the incentive for them to raise rates has been the fact that inflation's running so hot. And so they have the political incentive because midterms are coming up. Right. And so they Mm -hmm. want to look like they're taking a stance against inflation. Um, But, you know, at the same time, if, 
equities sell off, you know, 15, 20% because of how high debt to GDP is like where, I guess what I'm asking is like, do you have a certain number that you think you can kind of say, okay, they'll probably step in here and, and start to kind of walk back those monetary tightening, uh, you know, yeah. expectations. Well, I can tell you with the COVID shock, which I would tell you they were scared as hell with what played out during COVID on the NASDAQ, it dropped 30%. And then it had already started to recover. So they had stepped in before it got to 30% and announced the, you know, the 5 trillion, I think here, and I don't know what the full amount was, but it was a massive, it made the 2008, 2009 stimulus stuff just look like an absolute joke during COVID, but no one even questioned or, or thought about what the implications of that would be. So yeah, I think the magic number for them is if the NASDAQ's down 30% or more, um, I think if it goes through 20%, they're going to be, you know, soiling themselves as far as what type of stimulus needs to be added into the system to get it going again. Do you think that it'll be an even larger magnitude of liquidity provided if you start to absolutely. see another sell-off? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like double what COVID was. Which now think about that. So if if it's double, and, and who knows what it what it will be, but um, you know maybe they step in with a similar amount as COVID, and they don't make the economy come flying back the way that it did. But I think the issue that they're going to have in that situation is these these indices that we're talking about do not represent America, right? These these represent a few people that hold a significant amount of this equity for everybody else. They don't even have disposable income. Like their, their debt is accelerating at this point. So, um, so think about that. If you're, if you're in the policy situation, you know, everybody is, we're, we're seeing all time highs in the market. And, but you look at the, the typical American, they're hurting, man. So if the market sells off 30% and people are losing jobs and all this other stuff that happens when those situations happen in, in the markets, um, they're going to have to step in with a fire hose, but where are they going to point it? I think they're going to really kind of go to the masses and do, you know, helicopter money and, and UBI checks um, to, to try to keep the stability, political stability, especially. Uh, intact. Now, what do you think is going to happen to your inflation, the, the bucket that they're telling you to look in? What's going to happen to that bucket, right? It's going to, it's going to go double digits. And then you don't think that they'll then come in and cut rates at that point again, or, but here's the problem, Will. So if, if CPI goes double digits, let's say it goes to 10% and they step in and are like, we're going to control, not just the federal funds rate. We're going to control the entire duration of the of the yield curve, which is what I think is coming next. I think that's the next thing after it throws a deflationary fit, it's then going to be yield curve control, it's going to be UBI checks. Um, and I think the way they're going to be controlling the curve is like your 30 year treasury might be at 1.5 or 1% or whatever. And the rest of the curve is just going to be lower than that. And then any any sell off of people trying to get out of those positions is going to be massive amounts of debasement to, to buy all of that selling in order to keep those yields pegged at one and a half percent or lower. Right. And that's the part that people aren't going to see as far as like that debasement 
uh, rate. So it's not just the CPI gauge that you're going to be seeing. Now think about like what that's going to look like the in real terms, in real interest rate terms. So like now today, we got CPI at 6.8%. And here, let me pull up. Oh, I don't have it pulled up here. Give me one second. Um, your 10-year treasury, normally I have this loaded so I can see the numbers in front of me. Um, your 10-year treasury is at 1.7%, right? So that spread is nearly a, a negative 5% or 500 basis point spread right now, right? So what does that look like in this scenario? Like if we're fast forwarding and maybe this is a year from now and CPI goes double digits, but they're compressing these yields even lower, that, that spread is looking like this in real terms, right? So we're at like a 5% spread, which might be right here. Next year, it could, be, it could be widening even more. And I think if that plays out and you're actually seeing the real rate widening in negative terms, um, I mean, could you imagine being a fixed income, a person sitting on fixed income at that point? Like you're, I think right now they're looking at it. Like, I think that's a, I'm in the middle of a tunnel and I think that's a train, but maybe it's not, maybe it's just like a flicker of a light or something right that. But I think when you get into that scenario where it's accelerating in this negative real yield direction, I think it's the moment where everybody is just like, I have to get rid of these things and all of them as fast as I possibly can. Right. And boy, oh boy, you talk about a uh, bullish case for Bitcoin. That's it. Like that's, what's going to send this thing. And, and that's, what's going to make the stock to flow. Uh, these models, like any model, I don't care what model you're talking about. That's where they just, they're all invalidated. It's that's when the traders, the people that are day trading this thing, just get obliterated by not having a position because they thought they could make a couple extra percent. Like that's when it goes limit up and like, I'm sorry, it's up $30,000 on the day. Like you're out. I, I want to kind of position this now to like, we talk about like hyper Bitcoinization and like, you know, years down the road, call it like whatever, five, 10 years, however long you think this process is going to take out. Um, at what point would you diversify out of your Bitcoin holdings? So like kind of talk us through like, is that, going to take place once kind of Bitcoin reaches saturation? And then what would you be looking to diversify into? And I, th I think I know the answer here, but I'll let you <laughs> So, yeah. So we're obviously talking about a time that's way off in the future. Um, and you have to look at it in terms of just uh, compounding and free cash flows, just like what I was doing when I first started my podcast, which is I'm looking at the, the assets of the business and you're going into equity, right? You're going into something that's equity based that has free cash flows, period. That can outpace the adoption rate of Bitcoin. So will that happen quickly? I don't think that's going to happen quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say, I don't want this to come off the, the wrong way. It, for me, it's a lot more fun to do equity investing than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just so one-dimensional, I guess, I, it, from an investing standpoint. The tech, the engineering, like all that stuff, there's a million directions you can go. And that's why I'm enjoying doing 
the show specifically on Bitcoin so much right now is because you're in so many different areas. That's a blast. But from a valuation standpoint, it's very one dimensional because it's just, it's, in my opinion, it's taking over as global money. And so the market cap, it's real easy to just kind of figure out what you think that is. When you're dealing with an equity and you're trying to figure that out, there's so many out there there's, and they're all doing different things. They have s- such different asset mixes. Um, and then there's so much opportunity cost of being in all these other things. So it's, it's, it's an art to do asset valuation on equity. Um, <clears throat> so when you get to that point, the thing that I'm going to be really paying attention to is are any of those equities compounding their retained earnings at a rate that's moving faster than Bitcoin adoption. And when you start to see that, and not just in one or two, a person that would jump over to equities too early because they see one or two companies doing this, like, hey, just stick with the easy trade. You just let that thing continue to compound. But when you start to see it happen on a kind of a more of a macro scale, like if there's a hundred companies that are starting to come up with yields that you think might actually outpace the the pace of Bitcoin, that for me is going to be the time where it's going to be to start allocating that into, into equity. Um, and, it, and it's just a yield calculator. You, know, you, you were asking me earlier, like, what's the, you know, what have I learned from all these really smart investors through the years? The thing that I've, that I've learned is it's just one giant calculation of yield. It's like, what is giving me the most yield for the least amount of risk that has a competitive advantage for the assets that the business owns. That's it. That's the calculation. And so you're looking at what you believe to be risk-free returns or risk-less, more <laughs> less risky uh, returns. And you're trying to quantify and compare those relative to each other. And so before Bitcoin, the big calculation was, hey, the fixed income market is producing you know, 5% uh, risk-free, at least a lot of people thought, uh, not accounting for debasement against that. And, uh, you know, I can value this company and I think I'm getting a, a 10% return. So now is, is that risk worth it for them to operationally perform to actually produce that return uh, based on this price? So you're constantly doing that back and forth and kind of making that determination. And so there's going to come a point in time, uh, I suspect, assuming our Bitcoin thesis is correct, that, that that'll play out. But again, you are years from this. And trust me, I'm going to be talking about this. You're going to be talking about this. You know, you might be 30 years old and you're going to be talking about, you know, post the charts, you know, like it's going to be a blast. When, when we talk about this process of like hyper-Bitcoinization, what are some of the uh, milestones in your mind that you think will really accelerate it? Like I know you just talked about um, you know, the bond market and, and all that capital flowing in. Uh, so I guess that's one, but, you know, name a couple of the other ones, uh, whether it's like cultural entrenchment or like, you know, the domino effect of nation states, that kind of thing. Like, I, like when I think about how I'm framing this question, it's almost like uh, I used to play like, you know, like Mario Kart and stuff. It's like you go through these uh, like rings, right. And then you get a boost. Right. And I think of like that, that's how I'm kind of like visualizing yeah. this, this, this question. Yeah. I think that, so we've already seen the nation state step in. I think you're seeing, I think that that had a boost for uh, the lightning network. Um, 
that people are like, hey, this is really interesting. There's people like literally paying for things and they have to use the Lightning Network in order to do the instantaneous transactions to buy a hamburger at McDonald's. So like, I know that got me in much more interested in Lightning to get channels open, right? I had a node that was running, but I ha didn't have any channels open. But seeing that, I was like, hey, I want to contribute. I want to like have channels opened up on this network. So you have that happening. If you have more countries do that, I think that it's going to help from an infrastructure standpoint um, as far as getting Lightning more robust. The thing that's going to send this thing to the moon, to literally to the moon, I really believe is going to be um, the real interest rates widening in negative terms to some type of like critical point where the where it becomes undeniable to the market participants that there's no way out. Is there a number you have on that? Like, do you think if it I think it's double like digits? I think oh, it's okay. double. Pers let me let me rephrase that. Per persistent double digits in real terms. Like right now, you're at five percent. I think once you get to negative ten percent and it stays there for like six months to a year, and that's it, like the oh and, shit moment. And and each time it's like getting wider. Yeah, I think that's the moment where where this could really come off the rails. Um, and, and that's, and you know, when I say within five years, I was saying that last year. So like within that, you know, I'll say it four to nine years to keep myself consistent. Um, the reason I have such a tighter timeline is I think that day is closer to happening than uh, many realize, right? The, you hear people throughout timelines of like 15, 20, 30 years. And I'm just like, I don't think so because because of how I see the fixed income market specifically. That makes sense. Makes sense. What do you think is like the biggest risk to Bitcoin? Um, and I know like really not many at this point, but what are some of those things that make you say, oh, you know, you know, if this happened, maybe it would kind of affect my, my Bitcoin thesis. The hash rate is big, like really big. Um, if you saw the hash rate start to go flat and, and start to go down and you heard a lot of people were selling their rigs and they're just not in that space anymore, like this thing's dead. I, or I don't want to say it's dead. <laughs> Could, you know, anything can happen. Like we would be talking about something, in my opinion, way out there. Um, and by the way, you're seeing the exact opposite play out right now. Like energy companies, everybody is trying to get their hands on yeah, That block where we're seeing in Incredible amounts of demand. So yeah, it's insane amounts of demand. Okay. So, um, I, but that would be very concerning to me if you saw just a total lack of interest in mining and you saw a hash rate declining, I think that'd be concerning. Makes sense. And uh, Preston, the last question I have for you, uh, it's probably the most important one that uh, I've asked you today. It's just, when is your new rap song coming out? Uh, <laughs> when, can, when can we expect a, another video clip? Dude, I had so much fun making that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was the funniest part is like, I spent, I don't know how many hours, probably two to three hours making that. And right before I posted it, I was like, I, I had a little bit of cold feet. Like, uh, should I post this? Cause I think people might think that I'm a total idiot if I put this out there, but I put it out and people laughed. People would, I, I think people enjoyed it. I had fun making it. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to have any more in me, but uh, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dylan, Dylan and I were, were cracking up on the phone. I was like, did you see this thing? He's like, yeah, I saw it. 
Um, Preston, before we, before we wrap up, I just want to ask, uh, do you have any last comments for listeners or anything that you kind of wanted to get off your chest that we didn't cover? Not really. Um, well, okay. I, I got one. The volatility is really important for people to just keep a calm head. Um, if you're new to this, uh, I mean, you heard the numbers that, that we said about just protecting yourself from uh, a net worth standpoint, 1%, 2%. Because one of the most important things that I've learned about investing is it's all about conviction. If you don't have conviction in the trade, you're going to buy it at the wrong time and you're going to sell it at the wrong time. Um, And Bitcoin's very complex. There's a lot to wrap your head around. Um, And I would argue it's a little hard to have a lot of conviction in if you're just starting out because it's so complex, not because it's not a good investment. It's because it's so complex and there's a lot to wrap your head around. So um, get into it over a, like, if, let's say you got 10,000 or a hundred thousand bucks that you want to drop into this based on your net worth or what percent you want to try to, that's the first thing is decide what percent it is that you want to own. If you're deciding it's something that you want to do, decide that percent, slowly walk it into the market just because the volatility when you're first starting off can be a little bit hard to chew on when you're dealing with something that has an annual volatility of 60 or 70%. Um, and it doesn't seem like the volatility is letting up anytime soon. And I would argue that that's a representation of what this thing's trying to become, which is a global settlement layer, which has a massive market cap. Um, so go, go at it, get your, get your feet wet, build conviction, read as much as you can. And then as you get more comfortable with it, you can maybe increase your position size or, or whatever, however you want to deal with it. But, um, those are, those would be my tips for people that are just starting out. That's great advice. And uh, I think 99% of the people listening probably know you, but uh, in case they don't, just wanted to give you an opportunity just to plug in your your Twitter as well as your podcast. Yeah. Hey, I'm on uh, Twitter at Preston Pish, P-Y-S-H is my last name. Um, and then I have a podcast uh, called We Study Billionaires. I do the Wednesday show, which is all about Bitcoin, but we have other content. But yeah, I'd love to have uh, some of your folks as, as followers. Awesome. And uh, thank you so much, Preston. I mean, uh, this, this was a blast and I'd love to have you on maybe in a, a couple months or so. Maybe we have you on like once a quarter or something like that. And uh, I really appreciate man. you taking the time. I'm there anytime. You just let me know, Will. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Preston Pish, everybody.